Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and each cried out. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, and the people of Nineveh believed God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east, till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah, a fishy tale about a faithful God. All right, how we doing? You guys excited to be in church? Good, you had a good week? <laughs> then it's good you're in church. That's great. Good news. Well, it is good to see you all here today. Really glad that you're with us. And a shout out to everyone at our South Campus. Can we give them a big hello? Woo! You guys look great. It's, it's not a funny joke, but I'm going to keep using it for a long time. So, uh, We're going to hop right in today. We started a new series last week on Jonah. And we're basically doing a chapter a week as we walk through this story. And... Um, if you missed last week, just a brief summary of chapter one is basically Jonah is a prophet of God. He gets a message from God to go to Nineveh, go preach to them, and Jonah says, nope. And he goes the complete opposite direction. He gets on a boat, goes to the other side of the planet, but God brings a storm and kind of terrifies Jonah and everyone on that ship, and they throw him overboard, and he gets swallowed by a fish. The end. That's kind of where we left off at the end of chapter one. And really what we need to remember from chapter one uh, is verse 17. It simply says, the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside this fish for three days and three nights. So that's where we're at. Jonah is in a fish. Chapter two begins and says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. And then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, and yet I will look once more toward your holy temple." So last week was really all about what it means to run away from God. This week is the opposite. We're going to talk about what it means to run to God. Because Jonah does quite a bit of a 180. Chapter 1, he just throws a hissy fit. He runs from God, doesn't like what God has to say, would rather die than obey God. And already one verse into chapter 2, it says, so Jonah prayed. It doesn't take much, does it? It's a pretty quick turnaround, but I suppose that's what happens when you find yourself in, in the middle of like the rotten, stanky interior of a still-alive fish swimming around in the ocean. And that is where a lot of people will ask, did this really happen? Is this for real? Right? Have you ever, has anyone ever asked you that? 
maybe you have asked yourself, is this like actual, literal, does this happen? Because what happens sometimes with, with this story, with other stories, is that people will kind of use these as, as a stumbling block to the Bible. And they'll say things like, well, I, I like Jesus. He was a good guy. He said some nice things. But do you really believe a guy was in a fish for three days? And then got spat back out and just kind of carried on fully intact with the rest of his life. I can't go there. Jesus might have been a nice guy, but I'm out because the Bible's too crazy. Do you know anyone like that? Maybe that was you. Maybe it's not just that story. Maybe it's Jesus is a good guy who said nice things, but I really don't believe a guy can walk on the water. I don't believe a guy could split the Red Sea. I don't believe that dead people can come back to life. I just can't get there. It's too crazy. It's too nonsensical. I, I just, I, I'm too smart and too logical to believe the nonsense that I read in the Bible. And so maybe you've thought the same thing. Maybe you've got family or friends that are asking you those same questions, and you're on the edge of your seat right now wondering, Mark, can you tell us, can you bring some light to this confusing, cloudy scenario? Good news. Nope. <laughs> so a few thoughts on this before we actually get anywhere today. One is that it's always disappointing when people want to make non-central things the central thing. This is what people do, isn't it? They take non-essential things and they try and make them the thing. These are not necessarily hugely important things. They'll go dig for that thing. They'll go find that obscure verse. They'll latch on to something that really doesn't have a whole lot of clout behind it, but they will make that their stumbling block. And so my encouragement to you when you have those conversations with people is just to take people to Jesus. Send people to Jesus. Jesus is pretty central. Jesus is fairly essential. We believe he was the son of God, died on a cross, rose from the dead, is the savior of all of mankind. That's not open for debate. Right? That we we kind of stand on that as, as our firm foundation. So take people there. Talk about that with people. Right? Don't, don't linger in the non-essentials. Don't debate and argue with people about non-central things because this is, this is kind of what we do. The church has been really good or bad simultaneously at kind of wading into all these arguments and all these debates that, that really no one's salvation is hinging on those things. And what's happening is that we're really not leading people to Jesus when we're arguing with them. We're really not bringing a whole bunch of people to the cross when, when we're engaging in all of these debates. What, I, what I've found is that it doesn't matter to people. Like you could sit down with someone and say, you know what? Brand new, exciting DNA, archaeological evidence has just come in. The fish that swallowed Jonah was real. It was a 47,000-pound, 38-foot-long whale shark. It's, it has been sighted by historians in that region of the Mediterranean on that date, 3,000 years ago, complete and utter proof. You could slide that report across the table to someone who doesn't believe, and they're probably still not going to go, oh, Lord, I need you you. Oh, I'm a sinner. Help me. I've never seen that happen. Right? We're not really arguing a whole bunch of people into the kingdom. Oh, I didn't believe it till you handed me the scientific dimensions of a fish. But now I am sold. It's probably not going to happen. Jesus is central. Let's talk about Jesus. Preach Jesus. Take your friends to Jesus, because the longer we focus on the non-essentials, the greater the chance that, that people are going to miss him.
and their eyes are going to be on other things than him. Now, that being said, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, guess what? We believe some pretty crazy things. Don't we? Right? We, we believe that the Savior of all of mankind was born to a virgin who was given a heads up by an angel one day. Right? And the only reason we need a Savior is because there was this guy made out of a rib standing around in the middle of a desert with, with a, the lady, I guess, was made from a rib. And, and they were having a conversation with a snake that slithered up and they took a bite of fruit that gave them the knowledge of all mankind. Listen, if you're stuck on a fish, good grief. That's not even like in the top ten of crazy things we believe as Christians. Right? We believe some, some pretty wild things. And sometimes I think the temptation that we have is to try and, and make Jesus more palpable for people, to make him more normal. That's, well, we're normal. Our, our church, our faith, it's just like you guys. We're so normal. We're just like the rest of the world. No, we're not. Our defining feature is that we are not at all like the rest of the world. In fact, the word holy means set apart. It means to not look like everyone else, not be like everyone else. Romans 12 says don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world. We should not be ashamed to be not normal. We, we should proudly declare that I have a faith, and it's a big faith, and I have a faith in a God who is bigger and greater and stronger and limitless and unbelievable and inexplicable, and that is exactly why I serve him. I don't want to follow a God that I understand. I don't want to follow a God who could look at the ocean and say, I couldn't walk on top of that. I don't want to follow a God who, who says, well, that's way too big for me to handle. I want my God to be above and beyond anything that, that could be thrown our way. I mean, a fish, what, what kind of a challenge is a fish? Do you think God could really make a fish swallow a guy? I think, I think Jonah could have been ravaged by malevolent goats and still been fine to go to Nineveh and do whatever it was that he needed to do. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We, we serve a God who can do the impossible. And I think our world needs to see us know and believe and declare that I, I serve a God who can do some incredible things, some crazy things. That's, that's why I follow him. People don't want to follow a God that you can explain with math and science. I don't want to follow a God that you could explain with math. That's awful. If you can explain God with math, I'm out. I'm done. Anyway, I believe it was a real fish. I believe it's a real story. And you know why I believe this one was real? It's because Jesus talks about it. We looked at this verse last week. It's from Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus is speaking and he says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. If that wasn't real, then I think Jesus would have said, You know what? There's a pretty neat allegory in the scriptures. Hey, did you guys hear the metaphor about Jonah is really about me? No, he says, Jonah was a guy in a fish. So if, I don't know, I, if Jesus believes it, I probably am going to believe it. That's just my thinking on this one. <laughs> Neat tangent though, eh? Um, it's a good reminder. When you read about things in the Bible that seem unbelievable, absolutely. Our God is unbelievable. And he's pretty big and capable of doing whatever he wants. All right. Verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. See, it's right there. He's inside the fish. 
Now, do you think he actually was capable of opening his mouth at the digestive juices of the food? No, I'm just joking. Verse 2 says, he said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. That's got to be pretty comforting to know that you could be as far away from, from civilization, from people, from God as you could possibly get. We say rock bottom. He's lower than rock bottom. He's like under the, the ocean. I mean, remember, this is he was trying to escape from God. He was trying to get as far away as he could from God, and yet here he is about as far away as you can get saying, and you hear me. You're still here with me. This is good news. I guess you can't get far enough away from God. You can't reach a point that, that is so low that somehow it's, it's out of God's earshot. Impossible. You can't get far enough away. And so Jonah is acknowledging, even though I tried to run away from you, here you are with me. And Jonah reaches this point where it's kind of like he finally recognizes, I have done a bad thing. I have made a terrible mistake. And his only conclusion is that I should probably call on the Lord. Right? I mean, what, what left could he do? I mean, what, what's his escape plan? What, what's, no, he's, I'm going to call upon the Lord. And he gets desperate enough to call out to the same God that just a few minutes ago he was trying to get as far away from as he could. It's amazing how quickly things can change, isn't it? When life throws you a curveball, when you walk into this unexpected scenario, when pain starts to come your way, and you are forced to recognize your complete and utter dependency on God. Isn't that what it takes sometime? sometimes? Sometimes is that for you to lose it all, to get to the bottom, to remember that you can't do it, you're not capable. Oh, this is what happens when I get my own way. And that's what reminds you to call upon God. It's sometimes our desperation that, that reminds us of our dependency. And I think that's what happens with Jonah in this story. The situation gets bleak enough that he, he's reminded that he needs God. It was C.S. Lewis who says that pain is God's megaphone. It's pain that God uses to speak the loudest, to, to remind us, to get our attention, to get our eyes on him, to turn us around and say, all right, I need God. I need, I, I can't do this on my own. This is what happens when I'm on my own. Which isn't to say that God necessarily did this to Jonah. I mean, technically he did, but really Jonah did this to himself, didn't he? I mean, the story doesn't start with a storm and a fish. The story starts with God asking a simple question, and it's Jonah's disobedience that leads to a storm and a fish. So it's not that God's necessarily kind of go-to initial plan was, oh, let's just give him some pain right off the bat. It's more or less, here's what disobedience will end you with. This is, this is where it will take you. And it's that that kind of turns Jonah around. It's a bit of a self-inflicted scenario. And he reaches that point where he's like, yep, I think I need the Lord. Now, the good news about this is that being in the belly of a fish seems more like it's a season and not really a destination. It's a temporary season. It's not Jonah's final resting spot. The story doesn't end there. Can you imagine if it did? Chapter 1, Jonah runs from God. Chapter 2, Jonah swallowed by a fish. Chapter 3, he dies there. The end, don't disobey the Lord, right? Like, it would, it's a completely different story. That's not the point of it at all. The, the belly of a fish is a season. It's not necessarily the final destination. 
We, we worship and serve a God who works with seasons. He, he works with times where, where it's the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for peace and a time for war. There, there's a time for love and a time for pain, right? It, it's in an, you can always look forward to whatever the next season is. This is how he made the earth work. Aren't you glad it's not January in July? Right? We have seasons that we get to look forward to. We're not in my favorite season but it's not January forever. 64 days till spring. <laughs> I checked. And so maybe, maybe that's exactly where you are today. You are in a fish. It is hard. There's pain. There's discomfort. There's questions. There's confusion. Be encouraged that this is probably a season. That this probably isn't the end of the story. That God's plan is still good. It's still intact. It's not over. And he's still working for you. Psalm 30 says, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Nighttime isn't forever. Joy will come in the morning. Now, the other thing we find in this first verse or two is that Jonah is in a fish that God, verse 1, is kind of a special assignment, or verse 17 actually from last week. God assigns this fish to Jonah. Right, which is funny. The book starts with God giving a man an assignment, and chapter 2 is God giving a fish an assignment. The fish is the one who obeys, which is great. But he finds himself in the belly of a fish that God deliberately gave to Jonah. Right? God gave this particular fish to this guy at this specific time. He provided it. So I want us to remember this for a minute. What probably felt like punishment to Jonah was actually provision from God. This probably felt like punishment, but that fish is the only thing keeping Jonah alive. This fish is, is such a gift of God's grace, isn't it? Without that fish, there's no second chance. Without that fish, Jonah's a dead man. This fish is a gift. It's grace. It's a second chance. It felt like punishment, but it was actually God's provision. This fish is his rescue vessel. And sometimes that's how it feels to us when life is hard and when there's pain, when we don't understand. Our, our first instinct is to go, what are you doing to me? Isn't it? Why would you do this? Why is this happening? Why did you bring me here? But for all we know, this is the thing that's going to deliver us. This is the thing that's going to save us. This is actually a gift from God that he provided to keep us on the path, to keep us going the right direction, to take us to where we actually need to get. He wouldn't get there if it wasn't for this fish. Don't, don't confuse punishment with provision. Punishment actually isn't even always a bad thing from God. It's not necessarily this awful, terrible, negative thing that happens to us. I think we get kind of that confused sometimes. Discipline and punishment, they're not awful. God brings those to us on purpose. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So he punishes and disciplines his kids, the ones that he loves. Right? Punishment, like, it's usually not a super happy fun time, is it? Um, I remember 
in elementary school, grade three or four, whatever it was, we had a teacher whose punishment for us, if you acted up in class, what you had to go do is go out onto the porch and, and bang the chalkboard erasers together, which the word chalkboard is like 1800s is how it feels right now. I had to go bang the chalkboard erasers together. It's like, yeah, it's back in the pioneer days or something. Um, it wasn't that long ago. I remember being a parent-teacher a while ago, and my kid's using a smart board. And, and I remember, like, dragging the name of a province onto a map, and it goes, and it's all this, like, what? That's crazy. Like, exciting for us was when the teacher broke open the colored chalk. We're like, woo, it's pink and blue chalk day. Like, I am 900 years old. Anyway, punishment. She thought it was punishment for us to have to go outside and bang the erasers together. And when you did it, I mean, just poof, this chalk dust went, it was all over your hair and in your nose and your ears, all over your clothes. She thought that's punishment. We loved it. We begged to do it. We're like, yes, I get to go bang the erasers. But we couldn't let her know that we, that we loved it because then she wouldn't use it as punishment any, anymore. Right? Punishment isn't supposed to be something you enjoy because then you wouldn't stop doing the bad thing. Punishment is supposed to be painful so that you stop and you go, right, don't want to be here again. We did want to keep doing that again. So discipline from God, when, when it happens, it's something that we don't necessarily enjoy, something that we don't really want to count down to, right? You're No one's crossing off the days on a calendar. What are you counting down to? The Lord's retribution, right? No one's, no one's doing that. It's supposed to be painful. You're supposed to not want to like it because it's to change you. It's to strengthen you. It's to get you on a right path. It's to remind you and kind of give your head a shake and like, right. But he does it because he loves us. He does it because he cares. In fact, the author of Hebrews started those verses with, these are the encouraging words of the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about discipline and punishment. That's, that's, your, that's your version of encouraging? In fact, he says in verse 5, don't give up when he corrects you. Isn't that good advice? Don't give up when God corrects you. Isn't that what we're tempted to do when it's painful? When, when you're in the middle of a season that you hate and it's hard, when you're in the belly of a fish and you're thinking, just take me now, just end this, get it over with, your temptation is to give up. And yet the Bible is telling us, don't give up when he corrects you. Don't lose hope. Don't get discouraged. Don't despair. God is still with you and for you and helping you. You're still in the middle of his plan. I'm sure in the belly of a fish, it seemed like destruction, but that fish was actually his deliverance, right? Destruction, the discipline isn't destruction, it's deliverance. Discipline probably feels like destruction, but it acts like deliverance. Discipline is the kind of the mode that God uses to change you and get you to where you need to go. I mean, that's, that's what God does. I mean, how many of you can remember a time when God spoke the loudest because it hurt the most? God changed you the most significantly, probably in a season of pain, in a season of discomfort, in, in a season of confusion. It wasn't meant to be your destruction. It was for your deliverance. I mean, this is a great picture of Jonah being Jesus again, right? How many people thought Jesus' destruction was the end of the, the story? 
Everyone thought he was the Messiah. He's going to die, and, and it's going to ruin everything. He's going to die, and I guess we're going to wait for another Messiah. And, and he does die, and everyone loses hope, and everyone's crying, and everyone's discouraged. They thought that was the end of the story, Jesus' destruction. That's it. The end. And, and yet, three days later, someone leaves the door of the tomb wide open, and they walk in there, and it's completely empty. And it was Jesus' destruction that actually leads to our deliverance. And it's what seems like Jonah's destruction that actually is about to end in his deliverance. And the same would be true in your lives as well. But here's the thing. It's what we do in between this, this feeling of destruction before we get delivered that is so vital and so important to our faith. What do you do in the in-between seasons of pain and deliverance? Because what the enemy would want us to do and what we might be tempted to do is to give up. It is just, no, this, this stinks and it's hard and I'm done. But this is really what makes or break, breaks our faith. What do you do in between destruction and deliverance? And Jonah responds in the rest of chapter 2 with this prayer. I mean, all of chapter 2 pretty much is a prayer. It seems like you're reading from the book of Psalms. And he says this in verse 7. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. And I will fulfill all of my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Isn't that a great response? In the belly of a fish, when he feels like his life is slipping away from him, he says, I remember the Lord. And in fact, he even goes on to say, I will offer songs of praise. After getting a call on his life that he hated, after being stuck in a storm that he was terrified by, after being swallowed by a fish that he's convinced is going to kill him, his response is to say, I will offer praises to the Lord. That is what you do in your season of in-between. That is what we are called to do in between destruction and deliverance. It is to pray and to worship. That's the right response. I will offer songs of praise. In fact, this happens all through Scripture. So many examples of this. Uh, Job, talk about a guy that had a bit of a, a rough season. This is what happens to Job after his first day of attacks, he loses all of his kids on one day. Not just a child, he loses all of his kids in a single day. We read it in chapter 1, verse 20 of Job. It says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. That's his conclusion. When all of his kids die, when, when he faces the most incredible, heartbreaking pain that he didn't even know he was capable of feeling, his response is to praise the Lord. Same thing happens to Paul, kind of all through the, no, the New Testament, but this is Acts chapter 16, specifically verse 22. Kind of put yourself in, in this scenario for a minute. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. And the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten 
with wooden robs. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. And what do they do? Verse 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. They're attacked by a mob. They're beaten. They're stripped. They're thrown into prison. And their response is to pray and praise. And then there's David. He does this quite a bit. One particular time, uh, he's on the run for his life, and there's a king after him. And and so his last-ditch kind of Hail Mary effort at staying alive is to pretend like he's lost his mind. And he acts insane, and he foams himself at the mouth, and he he just kind of goes crazy. And the king buys the story, and they leave him alone, and he just kind of flees for his life, still trembling with fear. And he writes this right after that, Psalm 34, the very first line is, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises at all times, constantly. This is what God's people do time and time again after a season of pain in the middle of that season where it seems like destruction, where it seems like everything's just coming down on me, everything's falling apart on me. None of them yet know that deliverance is coming. None of them yet know that that God is going to show up and do something great in their life. They're in the middle of a confusing, painful, difficult season, and yet their response is to praise God. Their response is to offer a song. Their response is to cry out to the Lord. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will trust that he's still good. I will trust that he's still sovereign. I will trust that he hasn't forgotten about me. I will trust that his promises are still going to get fulfilled. I will trust that he's still got me on his right path. And even though this fish seems like destruction, I am banking on this fish being my deliverance. Because my God is good. And I know, I know some of you are there today. Because anytime you preach on pain, someone is there with you. And so really our our encouragement from both Jonah and really all of Scripture is in the middle of this season to choose to praise God. Choose to still claim that he's good. Choose to still lift your hands and worship him as a sign that you trust his goodness, that you trust his sovereignty. And so that's what we're going to do today. This is an invitation for you guys tonight where kind of wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, uh, here's both our opportunity to pray and praise. The band is going to come and we're going to close with a song. And maybe, maybe your response tonight is to simply sing the song. But, but what I'd really like for some of you is some of you need to come pray. Some of you need to come up to the altars. These, these altars are set aside so that you can come and, and there's, there's something tangible to the act of getting up out of your chair and coming to the front and kneeling before God that says, I need you and I'm coming to you. And, and so if that's you tonight, I would encourage you, let's use the altars tonight. And, and don't come alone. Bring someone with you. If you see someone come up, come pray with them. doesn't even matter if you know them all that well. I think they would rather be prayed for by a brother or sister than to be there alone. And so I would would love us to come and respond the way that the Bible teaches us and encourages us to respond. Maybe you're in the middle of a season. Maybe you're coming up on behalf of someone who's in that season. Maybe you need the encouragement for, for his promises and his sovereignty. Whatever it is tonight, 
I would encourage that we would respond the same way Job does and Jonah does and Paul does and David does. Just because it feels helpless doesn't mean that it's hopeless. And God wants us to know that and be reminded of that tonight. Don't give up, the Bible says, but choose to praise instead. So let's do that together.